When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine for the past 40 years. During that time, I've conducted hundreds of interviews, many of them, at least from the early years, on cassette tape. In this episode, we're visiting that tape archive again for an interview I did almost 30 years ago with Johnny Ramone. If you're listening to this podcast, in fact, if you have a pulse and a functioning brain, Johnny Ramone should need no introduction. He was the guitar player and a founding member of the Ramones, a band loved and appreciated by anyone with a pulse and a functioning brain. Here's how the interview came about. Halloween weekend of 1994, I was in New Jersey hanging out with Jerry Only of the Misfits at the Chiller Theater Convention. Johnny was a big collector of vintage movie memorabilia, and he was also in attendance, so I took the opportunity to introduce myself, and I slipped him a couple of issues of Ugly Things. I figured that was the end of it, but a couple of weeks later, he sent me a postcard from Brazil, thanking me for the magazines and telling me how much he enjoyed them. Have you ever done a feature on the vagrants, he wrote. I saw them dozens of times while growing up. That sounded like a great angle for a story, so I mailed a letter to Johnny with my phone numbers to see if he'd like to talk about it. Almost immediately, I got a call at work. Johnny Ramone for you on line two. Sure, he told me. He'd love to talk about the vagrants, the Ramones, and anything else I'd like to cover. Even his 60s high school garage band with Tommy Ramone, the Tangerine Puppets. We did a phone interview a few days later, January 3rd, 1995, and that's what you'll be hearing next. First, though, I wanted to encourage anyone listening to become a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, you'll get access to all kinds of exclusive content, including rare photos, music and memorabilia, and interview outtakes. And you'll help us to cover our expenses so we can keep bringing you more unique interviews and discussions. If you join now, you'll get full access to all of the bonus content for the two seasons of the podcast. Just go to patreon.com backslash uglythingspod. Your support would be very much appreciated. Now here's my 1995 conversation with the late, great Johnny Ramone. It originally appeared in issue number 14 of the magazine. Okay. Um, first, I thought maybe we could just sort of uh, set the scene a little bit. Okay. Um, you growing up in the Forest Hills area of Queens? Uh, yeah. Well, what, you know, Basically, uh, teenage years, yeah. No, you know, how would you describe your neighborhood? You know, what kind of area is that? Basically, it was uh, middle class to um, upper middle class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a regular suburb, uh, you know, about 10 miles out of the city. Yeah. And, um, you know, when, you first, when did you first get interested in uh, music? Uh... Well, probably uh, when I was about uh, six years old or so, and I saw Elvis Presley on TV. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, do you remember what, what show it was? Uh, it must have been a television show, probably, at that point. I mean, I might have saw them. This is Steve Allen, too, and Milton Burrow, but I'm not sure. I remember that television show. You don't remember what song he was doing or anything, do you? You know, and uh, I 
remember, you know, being really impressed, you know. I mean, it was tremendous, and my parents would hate it, and I realized I had to be really good if my parents hated it. <laughs> and I'd, I'd, I'd collect a lot of records, even though at that age, because my father had a bar, and uh, they would come in and change the jukebox stuff all the time, and uh, the guy would I'd always be hanging out in the bar all the time, and uh, they'd be giving me uh, eight or 45s out of the jukebox. Oh, yeah. That's pretty much from the time I was like maybe eight years old. Wow, so you already started collecting stuff. Yeah, I was uh, hanging on the ball all day and watching the ball games. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, collecting all the records, you know, I'd have all those little Richard records on specialty label and uh, whatever was coming out from uh, pretty much like 57 to 60. That wow. Period, you know. I would notice that my parents would get most upset when I put Little Richard records on, so I figured you had to be really good, you know? <laughs> They'd go nuts, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember that later on, you know, that any band that, you know, you put them on and the, your parents would really hate them, they must be good, you know? <laughs> you know later on in life, I'd put Black Sabbath on, they would hate that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if they liked it, then you'd know that you'd be you know, this I really wonder about the Beatles, because, you know, I'd put that on, they'd go, oh, that's nice, you know? Always, you know, one, it can't be as good as the Rolling Stones, you know, because <laughs> but, uh, somehow they must have transcended that or something. I don't know. <laughs> Um, now, well, what about Wayne? What first actually got you interested in playing the guitar? Uh, in high school, uh, that's when you had mentioned the, you know, the band before. Yeah. Uh, the Dream Pop thing. Uh, I guess I was about 16, and uh, I guess when I first uh, started becoming fans of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, so back in 64, uh, bought a guitar, didn't know how to play it at all. Uh, then a couple of friends had a, was starting a band, and I thought the best way to maybe get into the band would be if I just brought a bass guitar, and uh, and they would just sort of like just teach me how to play the song. Yeah. And I basically did that for about three, four months. Well, what, uh, what kind of stuff were you doing? Uh, well, of course you're doing cover songs at that point. Yeah. Being 64, 65, 65 that. Uh, Rolling Stones, uh, I remember doing Shadows Night, Why Was Glory, I guess it was them, I put it out first, but I think we were like sort of covering Shadows Night one, I think. Yeah. Uh, what year was that, do you know? Um, Shadows of Night one was 65. 65? Oh, yeah, late, late 65, I think. Okay. Um, probably, you know, a couple of Bo Brummel's hits that were around at the time, I think, and I don't know if that was around yeah. that period. That'll be right, yeah. Yeah. And and that was when you were still that's still playing bass there. Yeah, it was very brief. It was very very brief. Did, did that matter? I told you that we played uh, the, at the school gymnasium, not the gymnasium, the auditorium, and we played. And there was a bunch of different bands uh, that were recording acts, and we were the, the local thing that went on first. And uh, and I saw the Knickerbockers, and they were the headliners, I believe. And uh, I just thought they were just tremendous, and this. You know, I would never be able to play like this. I must just forget this and just give up. <laughs> I just basically just gave up. You know, gave it up at that point. Really, you know, I figured get back to reality and just try to uh, do my best and get a job or something. you so much about the Knickerbockers? Uh, well, they were all able to switch off. They all they all sang. I mean, they were doing, you know, they did lies, and I think they did some Beatles songs, and they did a Righteous Brothers song, and I just, you know, I just couldn't believe how, how they cover these songs, you know, and, and, it just, and it just made me feel like I had really no talent towards this at all, you know. <laughs>
pretty much stopped at that point, and then not until 74 did it start again. So it was already, uh, so pretty much without without any guitar or doing anything for about nine, eight, nine years. So now, the Tangerine Puppets, you were playing bass. Right. And, and Tommy uh, was in the band. And Tommy was in the band. Tommy was in the band playing guitar. Oh, Tommy played guitar. Right. Tommy was a guitarist. He was never a drummer. Oh, that's right. He learned to play drums to be in the Ramones, didn't they? Yeah, we 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 pressured him for about a month or so, and then finally we talked him into doing it. How was he as a guitarist? Um, he was competent, you know. I mean, you know, uh, like you know, like a regular guitar player. Uh huh. And did you have what a, a lead singer or? Did yeah, we had a lead singer. It was bad. I mean, it was just. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was bad, uh, well, I try not to even talk about it because it's you know it's bad. <laughs> well, you know, everyone goes through yeah. the bad first bands, you know, but um, what other bands were there in your school? I mean, there must have probably been several. Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I don't remember their names, but the, the main thing that was around the time was the Vagrants. Okay. And they were in Forest Hills. And uh, I knew, well, first I, I knew Roger Montsua, who was the uh, drummer. And me and him used to be friends. He used to call for me in the morning. We used to go to school. And he was a great drummer. And then I hear, you know, he was telling me how he's going to get into the vagrants. And Larry West, which is was Weinstein, Larry Weinstein, which is Leslie's brother. Uh-huh. You familiar with the, the Yeah, the he, band? Was, he was the bass player, right? Right. And uh, he'd be sitting there in the study hall. He'd be on permanent suspension. Uh, for having his hair too long. <laughs> and he'd be saying how he's starting a band with his brother, his brother's a great guitar player. And I'd ask other kids in the school about, you know, the other good guitar players, and they go, ah, oh, no, he's just a fat kid, you know, he can't, you know, he's not so good, and, you know, but Larry would always be saying how great his brother was. His brother was just a, a, a dropout. Uh-huh. <laughs> his, bro- his brother's older, right? Then. Yeah, his brother was older. So the Larry, Larry at this point was like 15, I'd be about 16, I think Leslie was like 18. Yeah, and uh, Larry just got suspended like the whole year because all it mattered was uh, the vagrants and growing his hair, and you know that was the important thing in <laughs> life. And uh, so they were starting, and uh, as soon as I saw Leslie play, I thought, "Wow, this guy's great!" You know, he didn't play like he played like later on, but he was just able to play uh, whatever cover he would be doing. He'd be able to just do it so exact, you know. Beatles stuff, from Beatles stuff to uh, "You Really Got Me," and you know, that, you know, whatever he would figure out, he would, you know, play just like the record. You know? Wow! And, and this is well before they started putting out their own singles, right? The Vagrants, that is. Right. Uh, when did uh, the first one? I can't make a friend come out. I, I think it's uh, January '66. Yeah, it's early '66. Yeah, so this got to be in this got to be in '65. point where they were they kind of different they were um they were more diverse because then they sort of became more like a young rascals kind of style. right they went through so many different uh evolutions throughout the band i mean it would start off as a, a straight cover band just doing very straight covers from beatles to rolling stones to uh uh leslie would get to sing one song where will beethoven uh-huh and uh, they would just switch off on the vocals between Larry and Pete Sabatino, who was the singer. And, they, and they, did they have the organ all, all the yeah, time? Yeah, they had the organ. Would it just be a, um, a portable one at that point, like a Farfisa? Yeah. You know, and then eventually turned into a Hammond. Uh, somewhere along the way, they went away for the summer and uh, to Long Island to play some places. I think they came back, and that's when you started hearing about the Rascals, the Vanilla Fudge. The Vegas came back, and they were different. Now they were into uh, more like the rascal type Manila Fudge thing. Yeah. Where the song slowed down and uh, doing sort of a, a soul type of thing. Right. Know, like Mustang Sally type uh, stuff. 
Yeah. You know, good love, and they were doing good love in it all, you know. And <laughs> they kept doing covers of other people's songs, but they would be better than The Rascals, and better than uh, The Vanilla Fudge. Wow. You know, at doing the stuff. They just looked better. Leslie's guitar playing was far superior to, you know, um, the drummer for the Vagrants was supposed to be real uh, flashy and, and like kind right. of like the drummer for the Rascals. Was. Right, so yeah, it was great. And uh, but uh, Larry West uh, was really becoming a star at that point. You know, uh, it's weird because they would play. I think the Rolling Stone Club here in the city. And I think they played there for like six straight months, like five, six nights a week. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, now, where was, where, was the, you know. where was the Rolling Stone Club? I, I don't think I've heard about that one. I think it was Nicktown on the east, on the east side. Uh, once I got out of certain areas, it was uh, difficult for me. I, uh, I don't know if I was 18. Uh, I might have been 17 still or something. Uh-huh. So it might have been difficult to get into certain places. Now, where would you, you usually see them play? What, what kind of places? I would try to get into wherever I could. Uh, It'd be, you know, strange things. I mean, sometimes you get into certain clubs, they wouldn't be so heavy with the proofing. Uh, there would be a place in the city, I saw them at Manhattan Center. Uh, it's hard to remember Action House on Long Island. Uh-huh. Places like that. So were you driving at this point? Driving no, to the shows I, I, I never drove until just much later. Okay. See what we what like uh, get a ride with a friend or yeah. take the train or whatever. Yeah, you bet they'd be doing it. Get a ride with friends. Yeah. Generally, at these shows, would there be like a bill of several bands or with the vagrants? No, later on, uh, I got that way. Uh, we're probably looking at around 67. To be able, I'd go, you'd go to the shows a lot at the, uh, the Fillmore. Uh-huh. And the Fillmore would have these multiple uh, group shows. And uh, vagrants would be getting on shows like that on the, maybe the lower bill. Or, uh, I remember going to a, a WMCI, a good guy show here in the city, which uh, had whole bunch of acts. Everybody would come on and play about three songs. And the Vagrants had a fairly good bill on that. The Cream were on it, the Who were on it, Mitch Ryder, Detroit Wheels, and not the Detroit, Detroit was Mitch Ryder, when he went solo at that point, uh, was I think, the headliner. Wow. Must have been a phenomenal show. Yeah, these things were really good, you know. And how did the Vagrants match up to you? Do you think they matched up to the... Yeah, I thought they matched up, yeah. That's great. Uh, I didn't see no problem, you know. They had a certain... Uh, the band looked so good. And uh, I said Larry was really, uh, he was becoming like a Jim Morrison. And it's wow. hard to imagine, but he must have been modeling himself after Jim Morrison at that point, you know. Just, you know, permanently like fucked up and, uh, you know, with the leather pants and the long, you know, wavy curly hair. Uh-huh. You know. So, you know, what would the, the stage act be like? Would there be a lot of, a lot of movement or anything? Yeah, a lot of movement. Uh, Leslie became more and more flashy with uh, the, the outfits he would be getting on to. You know, they would go, they'd go through so many different phases, but everything would come in, you know, with uh, the, the really loud colored clothes, with uh, boas. Leslie would be wearing these boas, <laughs> feathered things around them and everything. Wow. Well. <laughs> so, so did they have like We're a... Seeing some 350-pound guy <laughs> like this, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so was were you like part of like a vagrant's following that used to sort of follow him around or, or were you always there not really a following it was just I don't know different people every show I was just a fan like anybody's a fan I would really not be bothered bothered talking to people People, I would just go with my friends and watch the show you know Yeah. I'd be going to all concerts I'd be trying to see all the concerts I could and uh, I mean uh, let's see I saw the Stones like five times with Brian Jones I mean I've seen the Who ten times and uh, wow. the Doors probably seven eight times uh, uh, just every band I don't know if there's anybody that I had wanted to see that I didn't see 
Well, well can you, can you uh, remember any particular standout shows? I mean, what about the first time you saw the Stones? That must have been... First time I saw the Stones was in June of 64. So it was the first tour. At Carnegie Hall. And wow. then I saw them uh, later on in the year, I think at the Academy of Music, which later became the Palladium on uh, 14th Street in the city. Uh, the following year again at the Academy of Music. And then uh, probably the following year after that at Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. That was tremendous. Uh, but I'll tell you, you know, as you become a little bit more educated within going to concerts, I mean, that's basically, that was the second concert I had ever been to seeing the Rolling Stones. Uh -huh. Uh, later on, uh, after you've seen hundreds of concerts, and then you start seeing some stuff, and you sort of have like a better grasp on the situation. Uh, seeing Led Zeppelin at the time of, um, first album was out, and they started introducing a whole lot of love, so they were getting ready to uh, do a second album where they had done it, and they weren't playing the stuff yet. So yeah. it was in between first and second album time. and. Uh, Saw them at the pavilion in uh, Queens, and I was like right in the front against the stage, and uh, that was just tremendous. You know, the certain excitement that you felt that you only feel, you only feel it very rarely. Right. You know, you feel like the you know the, the hair on your arms like standing up. You know, uh, seeing Grand Funk Railroad was uh, tremendous. Uh, I saw them at Stony Brook Gym, and. It, it had to be, it must have been 120 degrees or something in the place because uh, he was dripping wet without doing anything. <laughs> and uh, the volume that they played at, they were, just, they were tremendous. Uh, some of the great, great shows. Seeing the Doors, uh, you know, uh, great show. Yeah, that was, when was that, 67? Yeah, but uh, I've seen them a bunch of times, but finally, probably by the last time I saw them, it was the most memorable one. It was at the Singer Bowl. Uh -huh. uh, sort of, I think a, a sort of famous concert because a whole riot broke out. I've seen clips from that with a girl in the dressing room off of a blood and all. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, our manager that we have now was the promoter of the concert. And he was a kid living across the street from me and uh, now paths have recrossed and he's been our manager for the last 12 years. <laughs> now, what's your manager's name? Gary Kerfurst. Okay. And he was promoting these shows at the Singer Bowl. And he told me how, you know, I you know, oversold the place by like 5,000 people. The fans were getting flat deals. He was like 18 years old doing this. And he says, the doors wouldn't go on. The place is overcrowded. And uh, I go back there to see, you know, tell him you got to get on already. And Jim Morrison just wouldn't uh, even look at me, acknowledge me. And I'm trying to tell him, you know, it's time to go on. <laughs> uh, you know, so he, he goes on and, uh, and he just lays on the floor for a while. And then uh, gets up and starts asking people, "Do you have any? Uh, does anybody have a cigarette?" Everybody starts throwing the cigarettes. <laughs> then he starts some chant about uh, the pigs in the place and fuck the pigs. <laughs> and he's getting everyone chanting this, and he starts talking about throw your chairs or something. And as a whole riot broke out, everybody threw in their chairs, and I'm on the frontier on this. And so you're just trying to get out of here. <laughs> 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 and I guess he would just try to take it as far as he could take it, you know. Wow. You know, with this, the crowd manipulation. <laughs> you know? Now, what do your parents think about all this? Was this affecting your, your lifestyle at all? And, at home? Yeah. At that point? Yeah. Going to, um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm, sh I'm sure that I was not uh, becoming what they had hoped at that point. Yeah. Well, like, when did you start growing your hair long and that kind of thing? Um... I would start giving them problems about it pretty much immediately after I would see the, uh, in, you know, early 64, from the time the Beatles and the Rolling Stones came out. Uh -huh. I kept trying to do my best, you know, and be rebellious at that point. Right. Uh, was the school really tough? Was the rules yeah, about stuff like that? At that point, as far as I said, dress code and, uh, and your hair. Right. You, know, you would just sit there, like, like I was saying about Larry uh, from... Uh, the vagrant, you could just sit there suspended, you know. <laughs> if that's what you chose, you know, I really couldn't do that. Yeah, right. Now, at that point, um, when you were in high school, was was Tommy the only other Ramon that you uh, associated with? Um, yeah, at that point, yeah. I met Dee Dee after high school. I met Joey after high school. Okay. Soon after.
as far as other bands, did you ever see the Stooges or the MC5? Oh yeah, a lot of times. Oh really? Yeah. Well, what do you remember about those shows? Uh, I remember going to a Halloween show in Staten Island, and uh, from the MC5 went on before the Stooges on that that particular show, and then the Stooges went on. I remember somebody throwing an egg at Iggy, and uh, he stopped playing. And he went off after four songs. I was very surprised because, you know, um, I wouldn't think that an egg would really seem to bother him. <laughs> yeah. You know, it would bother me, but I didn't think it would bother him. Yeah. You know, because, you know, he'd rub all this crap all over him all the time, you know. <laughs> you know, but they left after four songs. And they, at that point, they were doing um, uh, loose TVI. Uh, the Funhouse Help. Wow. So I saw them at that point. I saw them a couple of times at Electric Circus. Electric Circus. Electric Circus. I tried to call around St. Mark's Place in the city. Uh-huh. Uh, again, at Pavilion in Queens, too. Uh, it was another show with them in the MC5. What, what, what were the MC5 like? Or? Um, really good, but I saw something better in the Stooges. Um... I really like the MC5, so I don't want to say anything negative, but uh, it just seemed like, um, I don't know if I ever really saw them at their peak. You probably would have seen them in Detroit or something like that at their peak uh, in the early days. Yeah. But it just seemed like, um, it's to, uh, Michigan, uh, it just didn't seem like, uh, I don't know, it's hard to explain, uh, like, a, like a greaser type of thing. Yeah. It wasn't really really, really cool, like, when you're from New York, everywhere else seems a little bit, uh, a bit of a hit. Yeah. And, uh, and I had that feeling, and somehow the Stooges somehow transcended that. It was just so sick, the whole show, that, uh, you know, it went past that. Right, yeah. Uh, I mean, you look at bands as being, not anymore, but at that point, you look at bands as being cool, who was cool, you know. Right. Now, how did you look upon the the English bands? I mean, was that a, were they at a disadvantage or an advantage as far as that sort of cool image went? Well, what do you mean about that one? Well, yeah, you know, the Stones or or the Who or whatever, whatever you know. No, there was there was bands always seemed really cool. Yeah, you know. Um, you know, uh, English bands. Uh, I mean, I hate to feel it, but they uh, they always had this mystique that they were from the other side, you know. And I would always want to defend American bands and all, but you know, of course, I was a, you know a big fan of the Who, and uh, and they were one of the, the the best live bands I've ever seen. Right. You know, I mean, still, uh, uh, there's nothing out that compares to the Who. There's nothing out now that compares to the Who. There's been nothing out for uh, pretty much the whole time. I feel as, as a live band that can really compete with them. I mean, since I've been the Ramones, I mean, the early Clash were really good. But I don't see nothing that really compares with the, with the Who. Right. Now, the first time you saw the Who, was that on their first tour in 67? Probably, yeah. Probably. I think that was at, probably at the MC, WMCA Good Guys show. That's probably the first time over. Did they smash that stuff and everything? Yeah. Yeah, they'd come on to three songs. I think they were doing Substitute and Can't Explain to My Generation and smash the stuff up. Wow. Yeah. So that must have been amazing then you got uh, Pete Townsend to be on your last record then. <laughs> uh, at this point... Uh, this seems like a different person, I almost Yeah, thought. it's totally different. It's no longer the same excitement. It's no big deal to me. I, I meet many of these people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, never uh, at this point to... It's always such a uh, disappointment, uh, generally, in meeting people that you wanted to meet all your life, you know. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Um, but, but I don't know if you remember, but on that first two tour, I think the Blues Magoos opened. Did you ever see that? I saw Blues Magoos a lot of times. And what did you think of that? I used to go to Café Bois. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, and uh, I forget what it would be. It'd be like a dollar to get in in the afternoons and like uh, 2 to $3 at Two dollars probably at night, probably three dollars on the weekend. Uh-huh. And I remember seeing the uh, Love and Spoons were trying out. Oh really? The jobs. <laughs> and uh, and I'd go there like um, like every week. I'd come into the city, take the subway in with my friend, go down there, see the Blues Magoos, uh, 
Love and Spoonful. Love and Spoonful were the best. Uh -huh. uh, the Magicians were really good. Right, yeah. Uh, was later on, the guy wrote a couple of songs, I think the Thrills covered and became number one hits. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And uh, I don't know if they were doing the songs in the set or what that they ended up writing for the Turtles, I don't know. But, you know, they were doing Invitation to Cry and all that. That's a great guy song. had a tremendous voice and a really good band. What about the middle class? Do you remember them? No. no I think they were maybe from Long Island. Um, you, ever, you must have seen the Blues Project, I assume. Blues Project, I saw the Blues Project, yeah. Did you ever see the Velvet on the ground? Uh, no, I never had no interest. Somehow I must have heard the record. I felt that they were just totally incompetent <laughs> and uh, never saw nothing in them. Later on, when I started, when we started playing, I started uh, people going, uh, I read a review saying, oh, Velvet Underground, Velvet Underground influenced. And I thought, uh, well, I, don't even, I never even listened to this band. How are we influenced by them? <laughs> so I put the records on and then I started seeing what was good. They did have some good songs, but the, you know, the playing was always very, uh, Incompetent, uh -huh. <laughs> you know. I mean, we grew up with listening to you know the great guitarists, you know, uh, you know Page and Beck and Jimi Hendrix and uh, you know Eric Clapton, and then all of a sudden you start hearing that stuff, and uh, it's different now. Yeah, that's a different approach. Yeah. Now that you've gotten used to hearing punk rock and hearing some bands that don't play very competently as it is. Yeah. You go back and you listen to the underground. It all sounds like sounds like something that's happening right now. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so now you must have seen Hendrix too, right? Yeah. So Hendrix, so Hendrix and Steve Paul Fien, uh Oh, I even some before that. Even too, Steve Paul Fien at the time was like a two hundred seat club. Wow. And just sat on the floor, and there was like a six inch stage, and sat on the floor right in front of him. Was this before he went to England? Uh, this right when he came back, and uh, first album was just uh, had just come out. Uh -huh. Still not much demand yet at that point. I guess well escalated really quick though. Right. But I saw him prior to that at. Um, uh, oh yeah, well, well yeah, I got confused here because they went to Cafe Watt, the London School for the Night Owl. That was what the place was called. Okay. It was the Night Owl. So uh, it was a goof. All those bands at the Night Owl. Cafe Y, I would, I wouldn't, I didn't go to, didn't go there very often. The Cafe Y because it was sort of a, a more of a kid's place uh, okay. compared to the Night Owl. The Night Owl was always a cooler, hipper place. So Cafe Y was like Cafe Y was more of a thing that kids went to on Saturday afternoons or something. Teen dance kind of thing. Yeah, it wasn't dance. It was still a village beating a club, but it was still for uh, the younger kids. Okay. And I saw. Uh, Hendrix there, and it was uh, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I didn't pay much attention to this at all, at all at the time, because the only thing I remember was that Randy California was in the band, and I knew Randy California, who was in, uh, he, was from, he was living in Forest Hills. You said, uh, now what got you back into playing again? Uh, so that would have been 74. Uh, I got laid off my job. Uh, I was working as a construction worker. And I just thought that um, while being laid off until my father could find me another job, that uh, I'd buy a guitar and just fool around with Dee Dee and uh, we'd just start something and just have some fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we started like that, and then we decided to just ask uh, whatever t two other friends to be in the band. And uh, we would just start switching off to figure out who should be playing what. And me and TV were both playing guitar, and then after a little while, I said, forget it, TV. It's hard enough to tune one guitar. I can't tune two guitars. <laughs> and he kept putting his guitar to tune all the time, so I figured you better go switch to bass. Uh -huh. You know, and Diddy would be singing, and uh, we had a friend trying to teach him how to play bass, and he couldn't keep up, and Joe was playing drums. And what kind of stuff were you doing to start off with? Ramon stuff. 
Oh, so that's what you wrote us to talk about, right? Yeah, first day. Wow. First rehearsal, we put the records on. We said, okay, let's figure out how to play uh, this, you know. We put on, uh, you know, I forget, you know, like 1910 Flucom Company or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, something like Indian Giver, uh, which we ended up doing later on. You know, I said, forget it. I can't figure out how to play this. So I had no idea, you know. <laughs> how do you figure out how to play a song? I said, they would put the record on and, you know, hit a, hit a few chords. I don't know. I don't hear enough that sounds right. And then just forget that. We didn't write something. <laughs> so we sat there. We wrote, uh, I don't want to get involved with you, which we never did record. We recorded it for a demo. And then we wrote, I don't want to walk around with you. And, and every day we just sit there and write stuff. Wow. Well, it seemed like you definitely had a knack, knack for, for writing, like, catchy pop songs. Uh, you know, uh, it must have been, I mean, what were your influences as far as song, songwriting? Is it just something that you must have absorbed and you weren't really conscious of? Yeah, you can probably hear the influences with whatever particular song. Yeah. No real one thing. It was pretty much, we were, uh, I mean, we were liking everything, you know? I mean, we grew up with liking bubblegum music, uh, we always looked at the Beatles as, as the best band, and uh, I still feel that they're the best band. I don't think anybody's even close. Uh, uh, did you see them live? Yeah. Oh, what did you think of them live? Shea Stadium. I couldn't, oh, hear, I couldn't hear anything. Oh, yeah, well, that was Any live stuff I've heard has just been tremendous. Though. I mean, they play, and the singing and the playing is exactly like the record. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's a myth that they couldn't play live because the Hollywood Bowl album, they sound great, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing because they have no monitors, they're screaming constantly over everything, playing with no monitors, the singing's all perfect, the harmonies are perfect. Yeah. Uh, every album, there's just so many songs, just so many great songs, you know, you know, to go to, to put out albums, uh, they must have been putting out about three a year at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. Plus a bunch of singles. And singles. And then to go and write a double white album, which is, the whole album is still great. And, uh, you know, with, uh, I don't know how many songs are on it. You know, it must be somewhere about 25 songs from a double album. Yeah. A tremendous output of uh, material. Well, yeah, you guys were, were had a pretty tremendous output, too. And, you know, in the first few years, you were putting out a couple albums a year for a while. Well, yeah, in the beginning, we had everything written already for the first three albums. And uh, when we went in to record the first album, pretty much right from the start, I felt that the record company's going to stop picking through our songs if, uh, if we let them. So uh, we can't let that happen. So let's just record our songs in the order that we wrote them. <laughs> so uh, I was aware that, you know, uh, a lot of first albums, people come out, they pick their best stuff, and the second album is a bit of a, a disappointment. It's, you know, it's a drop down off the first album. That's usually the pattern, yeah. I don't think that was true with you. And uh, there's usually not much progression. I felt that if we uh, record the first 14 songs that we wrote, that the next 14 songs might be uh, a slight progression. And the same with the next 14. So we just felt that if we uh, record them in the order that we had written them each album, even though we might not get any better musically, uh, that there might be show a slight progression in the songwriting. Right. And I think that is there. You know. Definitely, yeah. Um, of course, by the time of, let's see, Rocket to Russia, Lobotomy, I'm trying to think what's on it, Lobotomy, Sheena, we would not be capable of writing that stuff uh, at the time we had written the stuff on the first album. Right, yeah. We were still a little more limited. Yeah, there's definitely a development. See, so through pretty much 10 years of going to see bands uh, and learning, and you learned a lot. I mean, I, I can feel that a lot of what we've done is just through what I've learned from seeing bands for all those years before. Right. Of things that I see bands do that was uh, really good and bands that would make certain mistakes. Yeah. You can learn from that. You can learn from other people's mistakes. I mean, I would just look at these bands and watch them walk on the stage and think, uh, wow, they already blew the excitement already just walking on the stage, you know. <laughs> you know, they come on and start tuning up and things like that. There was a time when people did that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way you explain it, it, it sounds like you had it very thought out. Um, I mean, did you, did you consciously uh, think about uh, learning from the mistakes of old bands, or that was just the way it was? 
Well, we were doing the best we could do. I mean, as far as uh, the songwriting, I mean, that was that was what we could. Do. That was all we could do. Uh, as far as the live show, yeah, we you know, um, as it would go along, you would start applying things that you know that you had learned from other bands. I know. I mean, uh, live we knew what we were up against. We knew that uh, there were so many great bands, and uh, kids had grown up seeing the Who and Led Zeppelin and seeing these bands, and we felt that uh, we're going to have to come off uh, as competent uh, as we can. There was no punk rock where you could just be incompetent like maybe some bands can be now, and no one really cares, and uh, you can get up there and just make noise, and you know, uh, bands do that. Yeah. You know? Have you seen Sonic Youth? Uh, no. Okay. But, you know, I know what they sound like. You know what they sound like? Yeah. Uh, there was a period of time where really you could not really, you know, get away with doing that. Yeah, why? Well, you know, just kept there making noise for as a, as a solo. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, we felt we were up against uh, these bands. There was nothing else to go by. Yeah, well, but you combine the, that... Um you know, competence uh, with, with uh, also stripping it down to, to uh, simplistic as far as keeping the song short and simple and to the point, you know, which is maybe something that uh, had been missing from music since Well, you had thought that things had gotten away from the, uh, the songs, but uh, you start off and basically you start off a front. You're not looking to change any sort of music. Uh, you know, uh, a year into it, you start realizing what you're doing, uh, you know, that you want, yeah, you do have something there and that, uh, you know, it is different. We were still trying to write songs and we thought we were writing songs like everyone else was. We didn't really think that we were writing songs that were so different. Uh, all, we could, all we could sing lyrically were about things that we could relate to. We weren't sitting there trying to write some ridiculous songs or six funny songs. It was just, that was just coming out naturally. Uh, yeah. You know? Uh, we couldn't sing about girls and cars and things like this. We didn't have girlfriends. We didn't have cars. We didn't have this stuff. You know, it wasn't anything that we could relate to, love or anything like that. We were just uh, borderline uh, loonies, you know. <laughs> now, when you try to cling to our sanity. You know? <laughs> When you, when you started the Ramones in 74, I mean, what else was around at that time that you even thought was, uh, that you even respected musically, you know? Well, I tell I, I, you, I've seen the Dolls a lot of times. I saw the Dolls like 50 times. They were always pretty much a uh, Rolling Stone type influence, though. Yeah. Uh, a good, exciting band. That oh, they must have been great, yeah. It was a lot of fun to watch, and, uh, but I could see their shortcomings at the same time. Oh, yeah. You know, I could see that middle America was not going to relate to this image. Oh, yeah. You know, it was just a little too much, you know, to have, uh, you know, especially the cover with a dress I can drag and put lipstick on. Uh-huh. You know, Alice Cooper's one thing, but uh, this is something else. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they were Rolling Stones influenced, you know, it was just a little too, it was a little too a little obvious at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, especially Johansson. Yeah, and it seemed like it was another, you know, like a like a Rolling Stones copy thing, and they were even doing the blues type things that the Rolling Stones had been influenced with at one point, you know, you know, with pills and uh, things like that. Yeah, right. Uh, and Slade, we saw Slade, and we realized that uh, the band sounded tremendous. They were powerful. They had great songs. Yeah, a lot of great songs. Uh, his voice was tremendous, and they were limited, you know, in their ability, you know. So I felt that, you know, that maybe we could do something, you know, that we could play too, and that's, you know. Now what about the uh, Dictators, did you? No, no, it was not familiar, we were not familiar with the Dictators. They were happening at the same time as us. Yeah. And uh, we weren't really familiar with them, and nobody was mentioning the Dictators to us, uh, not until 
a while into it. You know, whenever the when did the first? Do you know when the first Dickies album came out? I think it's seventy-four, but it might be seventy-five, early seventy-five. Uh, we're not aware of the similarities until uh, you know much later. Yeah, it's it's only on the first album anyway. I think they they rapidly sort of became more different. I know. Yeah, you know, more mainstream, I guess. Right. Well, they they try to go that direction, but yeah. uh, somehow I, I, don't, I don't. They were never playing the same circuit. I don't know where they were, how they got signed. Because uh, we were down at CBGB's, and and you had to build up a following, and uh, I don't I don't know where else they just popped up from, you know? Yeah. They must have got signed right away somehow, and they were never playing CBGB's. It was in another area totally, like the Bronx or somewhere or another. Yeah. Right. I don't know where they came out of. I think it was. I think even it was. Though I, I've known them well since then, but I really never got around to discussing it with them. Right. Um, they were managed, I think, by the Blue Oyster Cult people or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they sort of got stirred in that direction, you know. Yeah, so they were just in another whole different area, you know, uh, you know, uh, Bronx or something, and then they also just got signed somehow and also had the record out. No one even knew about them as far as New York City went. Yeah. Now, now when you guys started off at CBGBs, did you feel like you were part of some movement or was that something that was sort of just you were lumped in with some other bands you know later on when the journalists got hold of it um yeah you felt you you know you you felt like you're part of a movement that was going on there yeah it was a whole scene uh you didn't really feel uh we always felt separate from the other bands there was always uh, uh a rivalry okay. between all bands you know in some way or another you know, some bands we were closer friends with than other bands. Um, some bands, you, you'd feel the rivalry uh, from them towards you a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were always friends with Blondie. Right. Uh, I don't know if I really felt any, any real, because none of these bands I thought were doing anything at all like us. I really didn't feel any real competition from any of them except for maybe, uh, say, the Heartbreakers later on. Yeah, right. You know, I, I always, look, always look at them as the uh, next best band right. in the New York scene. Right now. Were there any bands you, that you remember back then that you thought should should have uh, become known that just sort of uh, disappeared? Um, looking back at it, at the time, no. Looking back at it, I see uh, bands that I felt, uh, after seeing certain punk bands become big now, I see, uh, say, the Dead Boys were much better than any of these punk bands I see now. Uh, yeah. And they got nowhere at all, you know. Probably sold 5,000 records or something, I don't know, you know. And uh, they were much better than that, whatever I see. And I look at any of these bands, like uh, Stone Temple Pilots or any of that stuff, you know. It's, no comparison. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. So it's like, uh, I mean, this band was, I, I mean, I went to the show at CBGB's and saw The Damned and The Dead Boys. And The Damned was the time for, you know, New Rose and Neat, Neat, Neat. You know, and uh, and the damn went on, and I thought, wow, this is tremendous. You know, great band. You know, uh, you know, Dead Boys. And Dead Boys went on and were a little bit better than the damned, even. You know. Well. And uh, so. Well, were, you, were you friends with the Dead Boys? Did you hang out with? Yeah, them? we were friends with Dead Boys. We were friends with them, and the Cramps were always a good band. They were back. They were at CBGB's. Yeah, right. in the early days, we'd always we'd have them open for us all the time. We always uh, thought they were uh, an unusual act. Right. But somehow we were always looked upon as uh, separate, though. Yeah. By the band. Somehow, I guess we were, you know, um, I guess we were, put in a, we were put in a separate category. Well, why do you think that was? Uh, I don't know. I felt, I felt like they, they, they looked at us as, I guess, the leader, you know? Uh-huh. You know, with certain certain feeling, that I guess they would have towards us, you know? Yeah. 
Were you surprised when you got signed? No, it probably took so long. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. You know, you start off, you're a little naive about the whole thing. I mean, I started playing. I thought, all right, uh, we'll get a band together. We'll do this for a little while. We'll get a record contract, put a record out, and then go back to work as a construction worker, you know? Uh, I figured, you know, I'll do this for a year and get a record out. So I have a record that I've played on. And I didn't realize how hard it was or, you know, uh, you know, so you have a million bands in the world out there. And I didn't think of any of these things at all, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it was all nice and simple, you know. You just go, you know, you know, you just go get some original material and you'll get signed and you put a record out and that's it, you know. <laughs> it just took so hard to, uh, so long to do it. And even that, it, we had it relatively easy even with that, you know. For the time where, I guess it took two years to get the record out, you know. I guess that's not really too bad. Yeah, well, it must have just seemed yeah, like a long time. Yeah, in your life before, really, you know. <laughs> now, I mean, once you had the first record out, did you did you foresee, like, continuing to put out records once you had that first one out? Well, yeah, it took so long, it was so much work already, that I felt like, oh, I better continue doing this. Well, you had already had all those songs stockpiled, yeah, too. Yeah, all these songs stockpiled, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then at some point, uh, still I didn't think about Somewhere on there, I start thinking about the, that maybe we could become big, and especially when the uh, English punk bands started a movement here, the Rolling Stones and uh, the Beatles of uh, the '70s, you know, the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, you know, <laughs> and the Clash. That you know, we'll be uh, the, you know these are the best bands, and we'll be the leaders of uh, you know of the, of of uh, that movement, you know. But it wasn't too big. Yeah. Well, yeah, you guys kept going anyway. Yeah. start getting into the whole history of the Ramones or, or uh, we'll be talking all night but um, um, just to sort of wrap it up what, what music do you listen to now? What do you find yourself listening to and buying and stuff? Uh, mostly old stuff still. Uh, like what's the, what, what kind of stuff you've been listening to you know the last few weeks? Uh, well I know this week I, I put on uh, the Beatles of the BBC uh-huh. Gave me that for Christmas. I put that on. Yeah, I got it too. Yeah, I thought it'd be nice to edit it down and just uh, make a, a tape out of it. You know, yeah, out the songs that uh, that are done well that I never heard before. Yeah, right. My own tape. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Get rid of some of the talking and some of the crap. Okay. Uh, but I was amazed right away and how good they sounded. Of course, as uh, live as usual. You know. Yeah. Uh, Elvis. I always listen to Elvis. I have an old jukebox, so I always put my, you know, I put the jukebox on a lot so I can get a little bit of everything. Yeah. You know, I just keep singles in it from prior to 64. Uh-huh. Uh, nothing much. I mean, if I'm going to listen to anything, current, not current, but if I'm going to listen to anything from the last 20 years, I'm still probably listening to mostly uh, a lot of uh, early punk stuff. So you, I'll put the Dead Boys on still, the cramps and things like that. So you think that stuff still stands up? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think the best the best of it does, definitely. Yeah. You know, and I, I kind of have a hard time imagining that a lot of the stuff coming out now will will stand up, you know? In fact, you know, like before well, before we play, and between groups, we, we you know, make up a tape. And uh, still every other song... Uh, you know, I'll lay out like a format. I'll tell them that, you know, every other song picked the, the punk rock's greatest hits, and then you put a something new by, say, Metallica or, the, you know, or something like Nirvana or Soundgarden. Uh-huh. But still half the tape will be, every other song will be one of the punk rock's greatest hits. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, one or two best songs by, you know, the Buzzcocks and Sham 69 and, you know, The Clash, of course, uh, Sid and Sex Pistols. 
Right. Did you get to become pretty good friends with those guys? Because you, uh, you seem to be one of the few bands that that that, uh, that even uh, admit to liking. You know. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, yeah, somewhat. You know, they we would talk to them. They would come. Sid Sid always wanted to. Uh, Sid was a really big fan, and uh, I felt bad when he died. I wish I would have uh, tried to do something to talk to him about it. You know. Yeah. Right. Were you? Did you see him at all when he was living in New York and everything? I would see him, and you know, and. You know, somebody had told me how he wanted to be in the band, and he wanted to, when he heard that uh, we had uh, Tommy left and we got Marky in the band. Yeah. And I was wondering, how could he be in the band as a drummer, you know? And then I was when I read that book, uh, I realized he was a drummer. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I knew he played drums early on. I don't know if yeah. he could actually play them or not. So I, I'm telling you, it's a, I don't know how true it is, but somebody told me he wanted to be in the band as a drummer. <laughs> you know, after the change was made. Uh, so I think it's possible after I heard yeah, that he played drums. I didn't even know he had played drums at the time. That would have been an interesting film. <laughs> I don't know where that would have gone. Uh, you know, just looking back, I wish I would have t- talked to him more. You know, but uh, you know, him and uh, his case, they were a little too stoned all the time. Yeah. You know, and pretty, I, I, I wasn't into that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I sort of grew out of that as a teenager. Right, I mean that must have you must have seen that out to a lot of people, you know, on the, on the scene, on the punk scene. I mean, I sort of always looked at it as a, as sort of a job in a way, you know. Right. I mean, like, I mean it's a great job, and you know, and I kind of wish for more, you know. I mean, I can't believe I've been doing this for 21 years. Hey, yeah, yeah, you're one of the best jobs in the world, being in the yeah. Ramones. Shit. How, how lucky I've been, all the nice people I've met, but uh, you know, I look at it that. I have to perform to the, the the best I can be when I when I play the show. I don't want to let the fans down. It's it's really important to uh, be able a certain uh, image to live up to. You know, and I, I it'd be very bad to get think of them a bad performance because of uh, you know self abuse. You know, because they hear so much about you. You know, you gotta and you want them to say, oh, you were better last time, even though it's going to happen uh, on occasions, you know, you're going to be better last time or better last year or better five years ago. But, you know, you're always hoping that they're going to say, you know, this is the best I've seen you, you know? Yeah, right. So it's, it's, it's hard to live up to. So somewhere along there, you have to stop before uh, that happens. Yeah, so how long do you think it's going to last, the Ramones? You see you see guys being like the Rolling Stones? And- no, I... I um, uh, I'd say 99% sure this will be our last album. Really? Yeah. Why? You just think it's that's all you've got left in you? I just want to stop before it gets bad. Yeah. I know we're still good, and I don't see nobody out there that's better, and I can I can tell. I watched the videotapes. I, you know, I don't see much difference between now and 10 years ago, really. But, yeah. But uh, I don't feel bad should be playing like the Rolling Stones. I don't think people should be doing that. I. I Maybe should have a mandatory retirement age, <laughs> you know, makes sense to retire after 20 years. Yeah, it might not be a bad idea, I suppose. You know, it's sports, you have to get out. So, so what, do you, what do you do when uh, Ramones are over? I don't know, nothing. <laughs> You're not the kind of guy that's going to uh, go off and uh, record a single song or no. an album or nothing? No, no, I, I, if, you, if I can't do anything as good, I, I know I can't do anything as good as, what I've, as this, and uh, so there's no point in doing it. Yeah. Will, will you still have the urge to play music or? No, you, you, I don't think so. I, you know, uh, yeah, from what I read about you, you know, it's like one of those guys that sits around playing guitar 24 hours a day. I, I don't think I've played the guitar in my house ever since I've been in the band. <laughs> uh, the only time I touch it is in the dressing room or uh, on the stage or at rehearsal. Right. You know? And how often do you guys rehearse? When now, when we don't record, we rehearse for an hour before we have to go on tour. <laughs> you know, we don't really stay, take off for very long. You know, yeah. I mean, we'll be off for three weeks. That's usually about tops. So we'll go and record, rehearse for an hour, run to the set once the day before we leave, and that's it. We're we're fine. If you play one show, we're we're, we're back to you know normal. Right. You know. Well, I, I could rehearse all week, and I'm still going to play the first show, and the first show isn't going to be quite what I want it to be anyway, so it doesn't make no difference. Uh, you know, I have to play, we've played 2,100 shows at this point. Wow. Well, you know. Yeah. 
After that many, you'll have it down anyway, right? We have it down. <laughs> <laughs> we have it down. You're still capable of making a mistake on Blitzkrieg Bop, though, on any particular night. I mean, you can still get lost. <laughs> they become pretty easy. Usually, usually don't mess up that one, but this, this is something that, you know. Sometimes you, you just go blank. Yeah. You know, you're up there, you just go blank, and uh, you get panic-stricken. What's the next song? I can't remember what the next song is. Oh, and then you forget, what song am I doing right now? You know? It's like a weird feeling. Yeah, I, I play too, so I, I know the thing. I wrote this song. How come I don't know how to play it now? Oh, uh, yeah. You know? You know, I'll hear him counting off, going, you're getting ready to go one, two, three, four, and I go, what? I don't know what the next song is. You know? And I just watch where he's putting his hands. I look over, you know, at CJ, trying to see where he's going to start the song, at least be on the right chord to start it and then try to figure it out from there. <laughs> you know? That's great. Yeah, your mind will start wandering and start thinking about other things or something or looking at the audience. And, you know? Uh, and, you know, the song comes up so quick. You know? Yeah, right. And we don't. I, I try to ever use a list or a song list and I just, you know, I just remember it. Remember it all, you know? Well, at least you think you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you're going to tour again for this new album, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're going to do America, of course, right? Yeah. Good. Well, I hope you do San Diego. I mean, if you're going to, if this is going to be your last album, are you going to like announce it as like a farewell tour kind of thing? or? I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. I, I, I'd like to do that. Uh, I'm getting some people that think something, that something different. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to weigh out uh, what people think here and take it from there. Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't want it to become something depressing, though. Uh, you know that you say it's a final tour or something. Yeah, but if you if you do it as a you know going out with a bang, you know. That's how I feel about it. I feel it should be announced as a final tour. But to see, when we play, the album comes out. Say the album comes out in May, and we go out and play. That, that might not be the final tour at that point. Yeah. This would be the final album, but the final tour can we can still do another tour. Yeah. You know? So this, we can still play for anything from a year to two more years. Just depends, you know. I'll see how it's uh, going along. Right. You know. But some countries I will announce, like, uh, I would think I'd like to announce a final tour. But, uh, so when's your next issue coming out? Uh, well, I'm going to try and get it out in the next three or four months. It takes a real while to get it together. I can imagine. So you've yeah. never done an article on the Vagrants, then? What's that? you never done an article no. on the Vagrants? No, I haven't. You know, I, this you know, spoke to people who have seen them. No, you're the first person I spoke to that's even seen. Well, you've them. heard a lot about that. Oh yeah, you know I, I got the, the reissue of the album. Right, I did too. And uh, yeah, uh, I must have seen them uh, dozens of times. Yeah, they, they were they were exceptional. They're really good. Yeah, it's one of those bands where you know I've always thought I'd love to do an article on those guys. It's on that record though, because I don't think I don't think anything really captured them at uh, their best. Yeah. And uh, the picture is very, very early, too. It's pretty much a picture from the time of the single that I can't make a friend while they're still in high school. Yeah. You know. Oh, they still look so cool in the picture, though. They get uh, really, uh, they get they get different looking later, you know. But the other thing I was going to ask you about it is uh, it would be cool if you got any old pictures of you. I don't know if you got any pictures of, like, you know, the Tangerine Puppets or you in high school or something like that. I think it would be cool to have a picture like that in the article, <laughs> you know. I mean, something that no one's seen before, you know. Um, you, do you have anything like that? I don't know. I was never big on taking photos. They'd always, always felt very silly taking a picture, <laughs> you know. I'd look at my parents and I'd say, don't give me pictures of me as a kid. Yeah, they always gave us a hard time when I take a picture, you know. <laughs> You know, I still hate it, you know? It's yeah. It's stupid standing there. Yeah, right. You know? Well, I don't know. If you, if you can find something, I, I just think that would be, you know, something. Can you get enough stuff? Yeah, yeah. I kind You're of, okay? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So, uh, well, man, I really appreciate it. Let me get back to you in just case you think of anything else you want to go over. Okay. Yeah, that'll be cool. You know? Yeah, call me any time, you know? Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll get back to you next week sometime in just case there's anything else you want to go over after you cipher through the notes. Yeah, right. You know, because we're just jumping all over the place. <laughs> and I can always get a hold of you at your uh, mailbox and everything anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Sure. So, uh, but uh, I'll give you a call next week anyway. Then. All right, man. We'll stay in uh, touch. Yeah, magazine's great. Well, thanks. You know, uh, just, it's, just, it's so detailed. Yeah, yeah, maybe too detailed. I don't know. <laughs> for probably for um, yeah, I mean it's, it's just it's just yeah really detailed. I yeah. wish I could find film magazines on horror stuff that was like that. 
All right, then. Yeah, yeah, take care, Mike, and uh, good talking to you, and uh, I'll, I'll check back with you in a week or so and see if there's anything else that you, when you ever get cipher through everything. All right. Okay. All right, well, thanks a lot for everything. Yeah, sure. Take care. All right, bye. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. Ugly Things Magazine is available at the very coolest record and bookstores and at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, books and CDs, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate us, leave a review, and spread the word to your friends. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Charlie Koenigsaka, Keith Patterson, Sophia Swartz, Dean Curtis, David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riger, and Derek Davidson. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.